comes to us today from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27, verses 57 through 66. Matthew 27, 57 through 66. You can find it in your pew Bibles underneath you if you're here. And so just on the top of your sermon outline, Matthew 27, 57 to 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the, lamp, the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. May God bless this reading of his word and let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. A word that shows us your plan of salvation. A word that shows us your great love for us and the grace that we have in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Holy Spirit, we ask that you open the eyes of our hearts to hear this word, to see this word, and to be changed and transformed by this word. Our great God, feed us today. We starve without you, and yet you delight in setting forth before us a banqueting table. So be with us now, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is a, an interesting passage because it's often one we kind of really quickly just speed past. We linger on the crucifixion, don't we, and the passion before. And then we go straight to the resurrection as quickly as we can because of the joy that we find there. But here... In this and each of the Gospels, the burial of Jesus is discussed. And we see it in all of our creeds as well, don't we? In the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we are told the importance of Jesus was buried. And we get a glimpse of why, too, or at least an affirmation of this, that this is something important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so he's about to say what doctrine is so important that if you are going to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to believe this. You need to know this. And he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so you notice that he didn't just say that he died and was raised again. But there's something from the burial that we are to learn. 
I learned a lot in preparing for this, uh, mostly from, I think, James Boyce. And so uh, if anyone wants to see the manuscript of that sermon and compare it to this one, you're going to find how much help I received. So I'm just putting that out there right now. So we have a fine, fine tradition in this church of being helped by James Boyce. Pastor John worked for James Boyce, not at 10th Presbyterian Church where he was pastor, but cleaning his house. And so, so but let me tell you that you find a place where you will learn and you say, I'll sweep the floors there. I'll, be the, I'll take out the garbage as long as I get to stick around. That's worked for me. I'm not going to say all the places that's worked for me, but I'm sure I've taken that to trash here once or twice too. So, three points from this message. The resting of Joseph and the Marys. The restlessness of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the certain rest we have in Jesus Christ. So the first point, the resting of Joseph and Mary. Now, again, this is in all four of the Gospels, so we can piece together and aggregate some of the things that are going on because Matthew uh, doesn't mention some things that the others do, although I appreciate how both Matthew and uh, John describe Joseph of Arimathea as a disciple of Jesus. And in two of them as well, that in Luke and in Mark, they describe him as one who was looking for the kingdom of God. But in the intervening time between Jesus, uh, just the last week, the last passage when uh, he died on the cross, and this time, the Jewish leader, the religious leaders actually approach Pilate again, asking him in John chapter 19, because Sabbath, that Sabbath, the Passover Sabbath was a high holy day, he asked that, Pilate, would you break the legs of those who were crucified? <laughs> These guys are really nice, right? So you have to understand that crucifixion was a horrible means of death, partly because it left you in the most pain possible for the longest length of time possible. People would last for days and days on the cross. But in the Old Testament, there are rules about not letting someone just stay overnight on the cross. And so the way that they do that, they take care of this, is instead of just, you know, just slitting a guy's throat or letting him bleed out really quickly, still got to make it painful. So, hey, break his legs so that he's hanging entirely on his arms, suffocating, all right, as just the fluid builds up in the sack around the heart. All right, and then I'm not exactly sure how people are debate how people die from crucifixion. Is it cardiac tamponade where the fluid builds up so much that the heart can't beat? Or just a bunch of, like, like 10 other reasons listed. But this is a bad way to go. And this is what the religious leaders were asking Pilate. Hey, this is a holy day for us, so can you just kind of hurry this along? Let them increase, just uh, have, increase their agony until the very end, but let it happen quick. So, and the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other, the left and the right of Jesus Christ, the th two thieves. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. No, according to fulfill scripture, what did they do? They stabbed him with a spear in the heart. So that water and blood came out. You know, that fluid-filled sack around that heart? That's just why water and blood, that happens. And so if there's one thing that you can trust a Roman for, it's how to, is to make sure that your enemy's dead, 
These people are really, really good at that. If I want to know how to throw a kick, I go to Marco Vasquez or Mike Lee. If I want to know how to uh, balance really big books, I go to Kathy Louie. I'm just, I'm just sticking on this side of the room. If I want to know how to invest in the future, I go to Steve Averman. If I want to go, if you want to go to find out what good pizza is, come to me. All right? If you want to know that a person is dead, dead, you go to the Romans. And so this all happened just before the passage that we just read from. Because now it was evening, and Joseph came. And in fact, Joseph asked Pilate for the body, and Pilate was surprised. Pilate was surprised and asked the centurion, hey, so in uh, Mark chapter 15, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether Jesus was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Jesus. So we have all of this information and detail around the death and burial of Jesus. And it's fascinating to see to what level of detail that the Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. This is talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, someone who suffers cruelly like that and is treated like a criminal isn't supposed to be entombed in somewhere grand and glorious, but that's essentially what happened. Joseph of Arimathea, Mark, Matthew even points out he was a rich man. I don't know how many times that I've introduced people you know, to others as a rich man. Hey, this is John so and so, he's a rich guy. Right? Matthew would have pointed this out in order to show the fulfillment of prophecy that this was. How odd it was that someone so despised would be given such a lavish resting place. But why does Mark record, and I love Mark recording this, that Joseph took courage? What was happening here? What Joseph was asking for was highly unorthodox, all right? Victims of crucifixion were not allowed to be buried. It was a humiliating way to die, and they were supposed to be humiliated in their death as well. So they just got thrown into a mass grave, into a pit for their carcass to be just picked over by carrion birds and scavengers, serving further as warnings to those who would consider similar crimes. In my life, I've been around or to countries, two places where there are mass graves. In Kosovo, when I was in the Air Force, so in Slobodan Milosevic, and had ordered just max executions of the Kosovar Albanians, and we were finding those graves while we were over there. And then when I visited Paul and Susan Lee in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh, there was a, muse a museum. So just talking about the killing fields and how many that Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge had just slaughtered there as well. And it's just a terrifying thing to see row upon row of just skull after skull. And you just, you have this sick feeling in your stomach saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. And imagine someone going to those in authority saying, this person that you just killed, I'd like to take their body and bury them. What are you doing? 
to yourself? What do you do? What, what if, if you did that with Heydrich or, you know, just uh, Gables or, you know, just oh, Goering, you know, just in uh, Germany, Auschwitz, Dachau, and asked, hey, I know that you just did all of that final solution stuff. I'd like to take the remains and bury them. What are you doing? You're putting a target on your back. You are putting yourself in danger. You are allying yourself with those that had just been put to death. And so what Joseph does here took tremendous courage. He was coming out of cover. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of these, the religious leadership. And the scripture says that he did not vote to have Jesus handed over for death. And yet still, there's security in the crowd, right? No longer. He goes to Pilate. All right, maybe because he has that, because he is part of the Sanhedrin, he goes and he asks for the body. And it's, Matthew says he was a rich man. Maybe not after this. Because you know how, how often your wealth gets tied with your reputation, right? So and how quickly people, remember Poland and Warsaw, how quickly people's wealth and fortunes were taken away from them. And yet, Joseph, described as a disciple of Jesus, still looked at Jesus and said, I am his, he is mine, I want to do this. You know, it reminds me of a scene in the last book of the Lord of the Rings where Mary, one of the hobbits, the short guys, in the books, the short fat guys, um, so just he's rolling around on the ground in terror during a battle. I mean, a hot, like being this tall in a battle when everyone's like this tall is a bad state in the first place. But then it was the witch king of Angmar, the baddest of the bad. I mean, well, Sauron was the baddest of the bad. But then the, his, his mightiest lieutenant, the witch king, was fighting Eowyn, all right, the daughter of uh, Theoden. And this was a lopsided battle, and she was going to die. But in that moment, clarity struck Mary. This tiny little guy, clarity struck him. Pity filled his heart and great wonder. And suddenly, the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his hand. She should not die so fair, so desperate. At least she should not die alone. You know, we get that heart, right? So with those that we love, and Joseph clearly loved Jesus, and he was losing his reputation this, in this tremendous act of courage and self-sacrifice. And John records that it wasn't just Joseph, but Nicodemus. Do you remember that name? John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a Pharisee coming in the middle of the night. So Joseph might have been a Sadducee, allied with the temple, explaining his being wealthy, and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and they came together. And they are a type of believer who suffers for the sake of Jesus. And we have to be reminded of this. You know, Jesus said, in this life, there will be much suffering. And they hated me, they will hate you too. Every one of us has to come out of the shadows to stand unashamed of our Savior, who was unashamed of us. Are you at the place in your life where you are willing to suffer for Jesus, to lose your reputation, 
to lose your business contacts, kids over in Bridge to have, be made fun of at school. You know, in one sense, we're all rich. We live on Long Island. We're in America. We all have reputation. We can all be slandered thanks to Twitter and Facebook. And so we see what Joseph and Nicodemus and these women, Mary and Mary, Salome, you know, they're also mentioned in all four of the Gospels. According to law back then, women's testimony wasn't worth, you know, just worth anything in the court of law, but in God's eyes where we are all equal. He was glad to have these women who were loyal. When all the disciples scattered, they stayed regardless of reputation, regardless of possible harm. But what were they thinking? Because they didn't have this whole clear picture. They didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said he was in three days he will rise. Michael Cards wrote, a massive circular stone, like tons, many tons, is rolled across the entrance of the tomb while the two Marys watch. You cannot enter into their suffering until you realize that for them it is all over. Jesus is gone. He's never coming back. None of his followers ever heard him say he would rise again on the third day. Or if they heard it, they didn't understand. But this is encouraging for us. Why? Because that means we don't need to understand everything to trust in Jesus. In Pastor John's chair analogy, I should have had a chair right here. In Pastor John's chair analogy, I don't need to understand how triangles are stronger structural braces. I don't need to know materials to trust that that seat will hold my weight. We trust Jesus for what we don't understand because of what we do understand. And Joseph, Nicodemus, and these women are wonderful examples for us of that of that trust, of that rest that they still found in Jesus Christ. And it's a contrast to the second point, the restlessness of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Because what what happens here? This is supposed to be the Sabbath, the day of rest. So Nicodemus, and uh, last thing from the last point, Nicodemus and Joseph, they are handling Jesus' dead body. So they're unclean by Old Testament law. They can't participate in the Passover meal, the thing that every Jew wants to be. This is better than Thanksgiving for them. But they would rather be counted with Jesus outside the city. Meanwhile, the religious leaders had their Passover feasts, but now they're back out in front of Pilate. And what's Pilate thinking? Three times in less than 30 hours? He's been sick of them. He didn't need more reasons to be sick of them. And they're working on a Sabbath. They weren't supposed to associate with Gentiles on the Sabbath, and they're in basically doing legal stuff. And they say, sir, oh, they're so respectful. Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. And you got to think, ah, man, are you freaking kidding me? Are you serious? The nerve of these guys, the whole kangaroo court, remember that's what Pastor John called it, this kangaroo court where they had Jesus executed for threatening to tear down the temple, now they're admitting Jesus was speaking metaphorically and about his body. 
news, I think, that would have been useful to Pilate yesterday. But this shows the concern that they had, right? The restlessness. I mean, these guys are like busy bees, just buzzing, 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 just one thing after another. They were right to be concerned. Because from Matthew 16 and 17 and 20, what was Jesus saying? See, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And do you remember this text from Pastor John's Easter message, Matthew 6, 26, 32? But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus knew it was going to happen. He told his disciples it was going to happen. The religious leaders heard Jesus. We're in an ironic situation where the religious leaders who hated Jesus might have believed and known the plan better than Jesus' disciples did. But they didn't want anything to do with it. So they're busy. They're restless. They're working. And so they're asking Pilate, Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And they were so restless because they were so busy trying to deny Jesus Christ. And now Pilate's response here, we know Pilate doesn't like them already, but how much doesn't he like them, right? So imagine being in Pilate's situation. Some commentators look just to think that he was just so fed up with them and mocking them because he just heard them say, wait, you want a contingent of elite crack Roman troops, best soldiers that the world's ever seen, and you want them to guard a dead body. Wait, okay, so you're worried that some people might steal them. The same chuckleheads that all ran, 11 of them that ran when you showed up with guards the first time to arrest Jesus, except for the one rat, all right, the one rat that you had, the mole that you had in the midst. But those 11 guys, and the one guy who actually tried doing something, all he got was an ear. That was his big, just his big try, an ear, which I don't understand because the ear, I see it, it's, it's there on his head. Malchus has an ear. You want to guard a, and uh, Matthew Henry wrote down, uh, oh no, Charles Spurgeon said, you want to guard a dead body even against a small group of cowards with a military force? You're fools. Wait, no, that might have been me. That wasn't Spurgeon. That was me. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm the guy who calls you a fool because I'm a jerk, all right? So I have no problem. Pastor John's nicer than I am. I, I have no problem calling people idiots. Um, but... And Charles Spurgeon thought the priests were begging Pilate, not just about the fear of the incompetent disciples, but to do what he could do to prevent the rising of their victim. To which, again, Pilate's going to say, all right, I washed my hands of this once. I'm washing it again because you guys are idiots. Good luck. Good luck keeping the disciples out. Good luck keeping Jesus in, in either case. They're fools. 
And the hilarious, hilarious irony is that this all backfired. And all it did was guarantee the validity of the, reject, the resurrection. Just like getting the Romans to kill Jesus guaranteed that, yes, Jesus was killed. No swoon theory like people came up with. No, Jesus was really beat up, went into a near-death coma, but he was like those 70-year-olds in Brazil that are about to be incinerated that wake up and like sit up. Like, have you read about this? I don't know why this is happening, but apparently that's happening not with Jesus. By Romans, he was dead, dead. And now, by Romans, the disciples did not come and liberate his body. And by the Romans, because no Romans would ever give up their post and walk away, by their testimony, the tomb is empty in the only way possible. Jesus, Son of God, rose from the dead. And so all of their restless effort was for nothing. In fact, only contributed to what they were trying to prevent. Now, I have a word for you today, you who are fighting against Jesus. You are restless as well. In fact, Augustine says all of our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. What are the ways we are restless as we try to deny the truth of Christ? James Boyce says you can begin with activity. That shouldn't be too difficult in our hectic times. Our world is preoccupied with activity and even rewards those who are busiest. If you are busy enough, you will not have time to think about Jesus. Then he says, uh, you can fill your life with sin and sin's pleasures. Jesus is the sinless son of God. Sin should keep you from him. Fill your life with the evil pleasures of the world. There are many. And then lastly, he says, you know what? Become religious. Sink into into ceremony. Do things not because they're meaningful, because you might have to think about their meanings then, but for tradition's sake or for mere aesthetics. Make your life as secure as you can with religion. Attach your seals, post your guards. But you won't win. Your skepticism will be taken from your grasp. The logic of the gospel is true. Just as we've read, it can't not be true. You know, the Apostle Paul came in kicking against the goads. Lewis came into the kingdom kicking as, as the skepticism, skepticism eluded his grasp. Fight all you wish. This is true. You will acknowledge it one day. Our prayer is sooner rather than later. Because, oh, there's blessing to be found here. The last point. The certain rest we have in Jesus Christ See, there's this question that we've got to ask. What does this add to us? In fact, James Boyce asks it perfectly. What does this add that is not already covered by our death to sin? And he continues, I suggest that the reason burial is an important step, even beyond death, is that burial puts the deceased person out of this world permanently. A corpse is dead to life, but in a sense, it is still in life as long as it is around. When it is buried, it is placed in the ground and covered with earth. It is removed from the sphere of this life permanently. It is gone. Actually, that reminds me of how my uncle described uh, funerals in Korea. Back, we really, we're really poor in Korea. Um, I mean, not every Korean. Yang and Christy might have been okay in Korea. I don't know, but my family was really poor in Korea. 
And what poor people did in Korea was after you put your loved one in the ground, you put the earth over them, and then the family members would come and step on the earth, tamping it down flat. There are probably some shamanistic, superstitious reasons behind that, like, you know, just keep the spirit down in there instead of out here haunting us. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of closure and finality to this. A lot of, like, just uh, Korean funeral uh, just practices are about closure, like weeping your brains out for hours, all right? It's for the closure that it's done. That is why Paul, who wanted to emphasize the finality of being removed from the rule of sin and death, emphasizes it. This is voice again. He is repeating but also intensifying what he said about our death to sin earlier. You have not only died to it, he says, you have been buried to it. To go back to sin once you have been joined to Christ is like digging up a dead body. Who wants to do that? The text that that voice is referring to here is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and following. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You and I, in Christ, were buried with him in his death. Our sin is buried. The old man is buried. And we walk in newness of life. So what does this mean for us? So, you know, I'm afraid of death. And now just you might say, Martin, that was the most obvious stupid statement ever. Who was it? It's like, okay, let me, um, let me elaborate. I'm not afraid of dying, all right? Just comic books, movies, military training, whatever, have given me many reasons worthy of dying, of putting myself and thinking about myself in harm's way. And certainly having family, what, would I, what wouldn't I do to protect my wife, my children? It's not the dying that I'm afraid of. It's the death. Because of the finality of it. Because of that unknown dimension of it. I've seen people as they're dying. I've seen it look peaceful. I've seen it look like it hurts. I've seen it, though. I know what to expect. I haven't seen the other side. That's why those books and movies and those just farces, letters from heaven, all that stuff, like 10 minutes or 60 minutes or an hour, two hours, however long that people say that they had in heaven, you know, just those books are so appealing to us because we don't know. And we're desperate to know. We're afraid of it. That's what uh, Blaise Pascal said, that we're all looking at diversions and distractions, little worries and little pleasures to obscure the knowledge that we're going to die. And Pastor John reminded me of Rousseau. I'm grateful to a lot of Europeans today. Rousseau who said, He who pretends to look on death without fear lies. All men are afraid of dying. So are you afraid of death? I am. Or I was. And to the degree 
that we don't hold on to this, we will continue to live in fear. But, listen to this. This is another European guy, Herman Ritterboss. Say that name with me. Ritterboss. No one said it with me. Christ was dragged down to the place of deepest human humiliation and defilement and imprisoned behind a heavy stone. Even his closest friends thought he was gone for good, a figure from the past who, would now, who now would be forgotten. Thus Jesus endured not only pain and suffering and the curse of death, but even, listen to this, the terror of the grave. so that he could save his people from this forever. Jesus endured the terror of the grave so that he could save his people from this forever. That is our certain rest. That is our only comfort in life. And in death, isn't it a good comfort? Isn't he a good comfort? You know, we're getting this from Hebrews chapter uh, 2, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because of Jesus, we have nothing more to be fearful of. Just like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. When did that happen? We might still be waiting for that, but that happened in Christ already. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, I remember Pastor John preaching in this illustration. I think he said it was from Martin Lloyd-Jones about a doctor whose practice was in the, some section of his house. And he was speaking with a patient, and he was giving him some hard news. He was terminal. He would die. And the patient was just in distress and asking, what can I do? Where can I turn? How do I know? How can I have any comfort now that I have this knowledge? And this good doctor was a Christian. And he said, let me show you something. And he opened the door from his office that went to the rest of the house. And immediately his dog comes bounding in. Do you remember this illustration? I'll never forget it. And the doctor tells his patient, my dog has never seen my office. He's never been in this part of the house. But it didn't matter. He wanted in. He had no fear or apprehension because he knew his master was on the other side. Brothers and sisters, we know who our master is. Those of you who trust in Jesus Christ. Those of you who have not trusted in Christ yet for your salvation, consider Jesus who is willing to endure the grave for you. Ask, what sort of love is this? You need to ask, is this love for me? Ask the Holy Spirit to help you and see what happens. But now, Christians, what are you afraid of? Joseph of Arimathea was afraid of authority and opinion makers no more. 
Nicodemus came by night afraid no more. Who are you afraid of? Are you afraid of death? Jesus Christ has entered death and stolen the keys for you. So you will never be alone. Will you stand for Jesus? Live for Jesus because he lived and died for you. And you are so calm and assured in him, in the opinion, that the opinions of men don't affect you anymore. You stand in Christ alone. From the oldest to the youngest, teens, go to school standing for Jesus. Let us love Jesus enough to stand for him because we see his great love for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins on the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you for enduring the terror of the grave for us. You said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You trusted and gave us every reason to trust you. And the Holy Spirit, the means by which we would trust you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes to see the worthiness of Jesus Christ and ask you work in the lives of our friends and our loved ones who do not know Jesus yet so that they might see that the grave has no terror left for them either. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for this great salvation. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now please rise and let us sing in Christ alone. I picked it for this line. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. But next week we'll be singing.